1: even in New Jersey, even in the midst uh, of of a war going on, that there were still shops in the area that were offering
0: imported goods. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jim Saratsky talking about the New Jersey Shop License Law of 1780. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by the Revolutionary War Visitor Center, Camden, South Carolina. Discover how South Carolina's quest for independence turned the tide of the American Revolution. Opening summer 2021. For more information, visit simplyrevolutionary.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jim Saratsky, and he's taking a look at commercial laws in New Jersey during the American Revolution. We often think about how the war progresses and how, of course, it affects our modern government, but we don't often think about how the war affected everyday people, especially in a port city as big as New York and its surrounding areas of New Jersey and Connecticut. Jim gets into that today. It's a wonderful article looking at everyday life for shopkeepers in and around the New York area. I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jim Saratsky. Jim Saratsky, thank you for joining us. All right, well, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Tell us about your background. I'm an attorney based in northern New
1: Jersey. I live here with my family, and I've lived my entire life uh, in northern New Jersey. Uh, My interest in the Revolutionary War, Revolutionary War history, I think really goes back to the fact that uh, I was, I guess, what you would call a bicentennial baby. Uh, during the time of the bicentennial, I was eight, nine, ten years old, and my parents were very supportive, taking me to different reenactment events. And if you recall the time of the bicentennial, uh, there were a great many events, there was a great amount of publicity, there was a great amount of excitement about the bicentennial of 1776, and something in that whole uh, era just Struck accorded with me even at that young age, and I began to see the events where there were reenactors or living historians uh, portraying, you know, the people of the time, the armies of the time, and uh, with the support and I'd say the encouragement of my parents, um, in 1979. Uh, Got involved in a reenactment group here in northern New Jersey, an organization that portrayed a New Jersey militia company called Outwaters Militia. And starting in that time, uh, in the summer of 1979, uh, I became a reenactor uh, with my family participating, and as I said, uh, supporting me and, and coming along to events and all. And it really built upon the interest of learning more about the time period uh, through reading and research, through participating in the reenactment events, and eventually uh, leading to the point where I became more and more interested in the history of the area in which we live here in northern New Jersey. Uh, and at that time in Bergen County, I now live in Passaic County. And uh, as I said, I've been a, a living historian, a reenactor, if you will, uh, since that time in 1979, uh, really up until the present, and uh, and always tried to continue the research for my own interest and my own knowledge, and as someone who's involved in reenactment events and different types of presentations to the public, uh, also better able to exhibit or even teach that history, uh, you know, to so the public at large.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: It actually came sort of out of a happenstance um, about four years ago. Um, And again, I've always been interested in local history, northern New Jersey particularly, the Revolutionary War generally. And it was about four years ago that I happened to take a hike along the Palisades uh, with my son, who at that time was in middle school. And while we were hiking up the Palisades and I was – Uh, talking to him about the history of the area, Fort Washington and the Hudson River and Fort Lee, uh, talking a lot about Revolutionary War history with him. And it was a short time after that, uh, I believe he had spoken to his social studies teacher in the middle school that he was attending. And he said that the social studies teacher uh, was interested in the fact that I had some interest and I had some knowledge about local history, and we began speaking a little bit about whether or not I might be able to come and speak to the class about the local history where our school is located. It's, uh, we're about 12 or 15 miles outside of New York City. And again, northern New Jersey has a, uh, has a great uh, history in the Revolutionary War. So as I began researching our general area in Passaic County, one of the resources that I, I accidentally stumbled upon was the New Jersey Archives collection of these shop licenses from 1780 and 1781. And honestly, it was something that I had never read about before. I wasn't familiar with, and I thought that they were very interesting uh, to me as a researcher and I thought it would be interesting as a subject at large because it, I thought it gave an idea of what the average people in this area were experiencing during that time of the war, Uh, because it dealt with, obviously, people being able to get goods that they needed, people being able to run businesses that they needed to uh, support themselves. And I just, I personally, not that my knowledge is uh, exhaustive, although I like to think that I'm fairly well-informed, Uh, But it was just something i had never read about before, and I found it very interesting. And then that was sort of the the entry step into the rabbit hole, if you will, uh, that led to more and more research about the general topic of uh, these shop
0: licenses in that period of the war. For those that aren't familiar, what was the state of the war in New York and New Jersey in
1: 1780? After the winter of 1779, 1780, where George Washington and the main army was encamped in the area of Morristown and the army was encamped in Jockey Hollow. At that point in the war, 1780, uh, the heaviest fighting really shifted to the southern theater of the war in the Carolinas and Georgia. And Washington and what was called the main department or the main Part of the Continental Army remained in New Jersey, uh, generally in the area of the uh, central or western part of the state. His headquarters being in Morristown in the beginning of 1780, uh, basically watching and threatening the British, who continued to hold Manhattan, which they had held since the campaign of the summer of 1776, when when they basically pushed the Continental Army uh, off of Long Island, then off of Manhattan, then out of New Jersey, and then maintained New York City as their base of operations uh, in the middle colonies for the entirety of the war. So in 1780, New Jersey was basically the front line, the insulator between the British, who were uh, headquartered and in command of New York City and the area around New York City, and Washington, slightly to the west across the Hudson River in New Jersey, uh, based in Morristown in the beginning part of the year, and then in uh, the middle part of the year, around June or so, uh, his headquarters actually moved to Passaic County, to Preakness, uh, and then in the fall actually moved into Bergen County in, in this account, uh encampment. But during that time, uh, there were some military actions in the state of New Jersey. Uh, probably the two best known uh, as far as British offenses against the uh, Continentals would have been the Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, which were both in June of 1780, uh, where the British came out of Staten Island in New York, crossed into New Jersey, uh, into current modern day Union County, and then were pushed back. Uh, and then a little bit later in the summer, July of 1780, Anthony Wayne. Uh, conducted his assault on a loyalist outpost at Bull's Ferry, uh, which is basically in the modern uh, Hudson County part of New Jersey. But absent those three military engagements, uh, besides foraging, besides skirmishing, uh, there were no very large-scale battles, as you'd seen earlier in New Jersey, let's say in 1778 with the Battle of Monmouth. And it was more a matter of Washington maintaining his pressure and his threat on the city of New York uh, while the large amount of fighting was going on in the Southern theater. And while he was also waiting for the French allies who were landing in New England, particularly around Rhode Island to see when they would be able to be heading South and whether uh, they would be able to reinforce him to perhaps even Uh, combine so that there could be an assault on the city of New York. And and there are mentions in uh, many of the correspondence back and forth between Washington and Congress, Washington is generals, uh, where in 1780, he was maintaining that observation on New York City and the New York City environs because he still had hopes of perhaps being able to assault New York City to push uh, the British out of the city. Never happened, but uh, he was making plans. He was collecting boats at many times and monitoring that area uh, where New Jersey bordered the Hudson River and overlooked Manhattan uh, to keep that pressure on Manhattan and also to see if there was an
0: opportunity to perhaps attack Manhattan. Describe the typical life of a shopkeeper before the war.
1: It seems from the research that I've done that uh, there were some people whose sole means of support, their sole occupation uh, would be maintaining uh, what was called an open shop uh, where they would be open for business. It would be, uh, if you, many people would probably think of it in terms of uh, a general store where people within an area would be able to get supplies that they needed, things for the household, things for themselves. Um, there were other shops that were run by people who did not necessarily do it as a full-time occupation. Uh, they may have had another trade. They may have been a farmer. They may have been uh, a merchant buying and selling and trading, but then also maintained a shop where some of those goods that they were uh, obtaining or trading uh, were then made available for retail sale to people within the, the area uh,
0: in, that were around them. How did the war change commercial life in the area? Again, as you said, New York City was an extremely busy
1: port in in that period of time, was probably the second largest uh, commercial port in the United States at that time, the first being Philadelphia, and New Jersey was was, uh, perhaps you'd say blessed and cursed by the fact that it was so close to the city of New York. Um, Obviously, the main Uh, thoroughfares, the main uh, means of transportation at the time being rivers. Uh, The Hudson River separated New York City from New Jersey. And so the locations that were across the river or navigable by river uh, would basically be where the New Jersey commercial uh, centers would become. So um, a few of the merchants that I mentioned in the article were based Uh, In and around at that time, it was Essex County. Today, it would be Passaic County. There are a few mentioned in Aquacanonk, which is modern day Passaic, uh, which again was a uh, basically a port area, if you will, on the Passaic River within easy distance of Newark Bay and then New York City. Um, There was Newbridge Landing, further up the Hackensack River, uh, Newark. Even at that time, and in, in, at that point, it was Essex County. And modern-day Essex County was also a very busy port and shipping area. So those areas had always been commercial centers, even prior to the war. Um, raw materials, whether food. Uh, iron ore and, and pig iron that came from the New Jersey highlands uh, such as around ringwood and all uh, the roadways would connect to those port areas from there boats would be able to traverse down the rivers, bring them to you to New York city where they would then be made available for merchants in that city to purchase, whether it was for use within New York city or for export out, out of uh, the port of New York to whether it was to England or other points uh, within the United States or the colonies at that point. Um, so the area in Northern New Jersey, even prior to the war and during the war was a very busy merchant area, very, very busy uh, mercantile area. Um, obviously when the British invaded New York city in the summer of 1776 and eventually pushed the continental army out of New Jersey in the fall of 1776, uh, New Jersey now became the front lines of this war uh, with the British in New York City, Continental Army in New Jersey and beyond. Um, so it did cause economic stress in the area. And there have been historical studies, there are numerous uh, that really discuss the trade that continued to go on between Northern New Jersey and British occupied New York City, foodstuffs, firewood, uh, merchant's goods, et cetera, things like that. And the discussion goes on almost endlessly about whether it was done out of economic necessity, uh, farmers or merchants or tradesmen just needing to support themselves uh, without really a sense of loyalty to one cause or the other. It was just strictly an economic decision to remain in business. Uh, Obviously, there were some who did take sides and loyalists within the state of New Jersey who wanted to do what they could to support the war effort on behalf of the crown and provide food, firewood or supplies to the British occupying New York city. Um, So trade did continue to go on um, during the entire time of the war, because again, New Jersey was this no man's land, if you will, really from 1776 until 1783. So farmers that were in uh, the Northern part of the state, Northern part of, New Jersey, particularly Bergen County, uh, was really very well known for a long period of time uh, for very prosperous, very successful Dutch farmers uh, who needed markets for their goods. And and the obvious market, once it was uh, satisfied within the local area, was New York City from from as long as they could remember. And when the war came uh, home to roost, if you will, uh, in New Jersey, again, some were trading. It was, it was called, uh, by both sides really, it was nicknamed or called the London Trade. Uh, and as much as the uh, New Jersey Assembly and the military forces tried to stop it, it still did continue, uh, really for the extent of the entire conflict.
0: The State Assembly will take steps to prevent what they call trade with the enemy. What did they do?
1: They passed actually a series of laws. Uh, 1778, they passed an act that again tried to stop trade going from new jersey going to the british in new york Uh, and again foodstuffs firewood was a major concern in the city of new york because the city of new york with thousands of british troops occupying whatever firewood was there was used up in in the very early part of the occupation because it, it increased so much the population of the city of New York when the British came in and made their headquarters there in 1776. Uh, so there were stories of even buildings being taken down for firewood, fences taken down for firewood, um, and eventually, of course, they needed to look outward to supply what was needed in the city. And New Jersey uh, was, was a very obvious source for supplies like that. So firewood, foodstuffs, etc were being brought in from New Jersey. Obviously, the New Jersey Assembly uh, was not pleased about that because it's now providing aid and comfort to the British occupying New York City. So in 1778, an act was passed that dealt with things such as foodstuffs and firewood not being able to be brought into New York City. Uh, It was not very successful because at the time, the really the only mechanism to enforce these laws uh, besides hoping that people would do it out of a sense of patriotic responsibility uh, would be the local militia sent out to basically patrol the roads, patrol the bridges, patrol the waterways, and try to stop this trade. But obviously uh, the nature of the militia being that they were called out for short terms of service. There was a lot of turnover And literally, they just could not be everywhere at every time. Uh, So there were gaps in that security structure where people would be able to get themselves uh, to the waterways, get supplies on boats, and get them into New York City. Uh, In 1779, a similar law was passed again, trying to strengthen uh, the penalties really, is, is what was happening. They were trying to increase the financial penalties uh, for those who were caught because anyone who was caught trying to bring contraband goods to the British in New York City uh, could have those goods seized. Uh, they would be subject to legal action in the courts in New Jersey. They would have to, if they were found uh, guilty, they would have to pay a fine. They would have to pay the court costs And they would also have to uh, surrender the contraband that was seized, uh, which would then be auctioned off. And a portion of that would be paid back to the state of New Jersey. And then a portion of it would be apportioned to whoever it was that had caught the person trying to trade the contraband. So it could be someone who's turned in, let's say, by a civilian, by a neighbor, by someone who worked. In a port area, uh, but quite often it was supposed to be uh, enforced by the militia, and it was then something where the members of the militia who had intercepted the illegal trade goods would be entitled to a proportionate share of the value of the goods that had been seized. So, in 1780, uh, yet another version of the law was passed by the assembly, and From what I could determine from my research and why I found it interesting, uh, was that in 1780 was the first time that, besides just trying to stop the trade happening on the roadways and on the waterways, I believe 1780 was the first time that they actually tried to take a step to enforce with the shopkeepers the need to get a license to conduct a trade with New York and to offer for sale goods that were not made or produced in the state of New Jersey. So, you know, in other words, the imported goods uh, that were coming from the merchants in New York City could only be sold in New Jersey if the shopkeeper had submitted a petition and obtained a license to be able to conduct their business.
0: Do you feel this act was
1: effective? From the research that I've done, I do think so, because, Again, the ramping up of the law over the prior years, from 1778 to 1779 and then to 1780, uh, obviously it was not having the success that the assembly was hoping that it would have in its initial version of the act. But what I found very interesting and why I think it, it probably was more successful, although I'm sure it was not absolutely successful, is that the research that I did into the 1780 Act showed not just that petitions were being made to the uh, courts of quarter sessions, but that the licenses were being issued and then the merchants were obtaining those licenses and then offering their goods for sale. So I felt it showing the, fact that the act was passed, that there were the petitions submitted under the act, licenses issued in accordance with the act, and then the businesses conducting their businesses showed that there was at least that level of compliance with the act of the assembly. Uh, and in that regard, I, I do feel that it, it was effective and it was successful in achieving what it was trying to achieve.
0: I think the real strength of your article is the various shopkeepers that you reference as individuals. Uh, talk about some of them.
1: The one who I think sticks out the most uh, really is the one that has the, actually the lengthiest petition that's uh, quoted in the article, uh, who's a gentleman by the name of William Nixon. And the, the interesting part of, of, I believe, William Nixon's petition is that uh, he complied with the dictates of the act, which said that to be able to, request a license, you needed to have a petition signed by at least 15 freeholders indicating that the petitioner was uh, a trustworthy person, a friend to the American government, and basically worthwhile of getting one of these licenses. His license spells out uh, the fact that he'd actually been a merchant in the city of New York, that he left the city of New York when the British took over and occupied the city of New York. And his petition specifically says that he did so because he did not want to create the impression that he was providing any sort of support to the occupying British. Uh, That when he came and he basically became a refugee, came to the area uh, of Aquacanon, again, modern day Passaic County, modern day city of Passaic in New Jersey, uh, that he came here with a fairly large family, which was typical of the time and mentions in his petition that he had seven children. Um, and that a short time after he had left the city of New York, his property and his holdings in lower Manhattan were actually burned in a, in, and destroyed and lost because of a fire that took place uh, in the city of New York in the third week of September of 1776. Uh, so he was left with nothing in New York the petition was asking for him to be able to conduct his business uh, here in New Jersey in the area of the which, again, was already a commercial center in a commercial area in northeastern New Jersey. Um, so I, I, his petition, just on its face, I think is, is a very succinct example of the sacrifices that were made by a lot of the supporters of the revolution in New Jersey, the fact that he had to leave his home in New York. He became a refugee because of the fire that took place. He lost everything that he had in New York. I had his very large family, uh, which he was then trying to support in the state of New Jersey. And and the, another interesting, and I don't know if you could call it a fact, but uh, in doing the research uh, that I did, there's a grave site in a reformed church uh, in the current town of Belleville, which in the 18th century was called Second River, uh, which if you look at a map would basically have been the town or township immediately below Aquacanonc. Um And in the cemetery uh, is the grave of A. William Nixon. Now, I don't know if it's the same William Nixon who uh, submitted the petition. Obviously, Nixon may be somewhat of a common name, Um, but he's also mentioned in a monument that's in the cemetery as a soldier and veteran of the Revolutionary War. So unfortunately, with the current situation over the last year with COVID limiting uh, access to a lot of uh, research materials and research sites where you can uh, go in person and do research, that has slowed that down. But uh, that is something else that I intend to pursue to see if perhaps there is a connection to the fact that perhaps he had also served in a military capacity uh, during the war. Again, it may be a relative. It may be someone that just has a uh, coincidentally the same name, um, but I I think it bears further investigation. But uh, even besides his petition, um, there are other petitions in the article. There are others that I found through the New Jersey archives um, that, again, spell out the refugee status of people who had been living in New York City but because of the British occupation in the fall of 1776, did not feel safe, did not feel secure, and relocated across the river in New Jersey, but obviously still had that need to support themselves and support their family. Uh, And again, I I just generally think that in the study of history, that is something that I've always found interesting and I think is important to learn more about and hopefully uh, put more information out about and educate about is the effect of these grand campaigns and battles and the military strategies and military actions during the war but to look at it on the micro scale of what it meant to actual individuals, actual families, and the effect that it had on them as this war was going on all
0: around. How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better?
1: I would hope, as I said, that it brings to focus the effect of the overall war, again, a global conflict, Uh, massive battles, massive armies, but I would hope that it would bring to focus the effect that it had on everyday people trying to live their lives in New Jersey during that period of time, uh, trying to maintain themselves, trying to support their households and their families, whether they were farmers trying to sell their goods or merchants trying to run their shops or merchants who needed to get inventory to be able to sell to people uh, because obviously that was what the act really focused on, uh, you know, having items brought into the state that could be offered for sale. So I would hope that it would show the effect on regular citizens trying to live their day-to-day life in the midst of the revolutionary war. And what I was also hoping to focus on, and again, this I think goes to, Uh, my interest in my participation in reenacting and living history is to give a better idea of the phrase that quite often gets used is, you know, the material culture of the time. What did people have? What did people use uh, during that time period? And I think it shows that while there was a very large part of the economy that was self-sufficient in producing cloth or clothing or household goods or things like that, that even in New Jersey, even in the midst uh, of, a, of a war going on, that there were still shops in the area that were offering imported goods. Some of the licenses and some of the petitions mentioned goods from West Indies, European goods, rum and sugar. Uh, so imported goods were still coming into the economy and being offered for sale, which means that there were people, there were consumers looking for those goods. So I think, again, it gives somewhat of a, of a depth to our understanding of the people who lived in this area in this time period um, to give an idea that, again, even in the midst of a war, they were looking for some creature comforts, some imported goods, and they were able to get them through these merchants who had submitted these petitions and been granted these licenses so that they could maintain their lifestyle, support themselves, and conduct their business. Um, So I I would hope that that is uh, the the result of this research and and the focus that can be brought from this uh, little bit of work that I've been able
0: to do on this. Jim Saratsky, thanks again. All right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.